Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John 2, 21 through 23 this morning. 1 John 2, 21 through 23. Uh, we're mentioning yet another text that mentions the Antichrist, which is a little uh, old at this point. And so eventually you guys are going to start to wonder, is Zach the Antichrist? And the answer is maybe. So if you see those wolf, that wolf-like behavior in me, please let me know, because I'd like to know uh, if, that's, uh, if that's my lot. Uh, but if you want more information on that, we did a lesson. Jeff did an excellent lesson on the, uh, in theological equipping that's online. And then two weeks ago, we also taught on that topic. So I'm not going to spend as much time on that part of this text. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the, uh, the other parts. Now, I want to start with a little story from church history before we get into this text. There was, in the fourth century, uh, probably the most well-known heretic that's ever come out of, uh, of the church, and a heretic is somebody who is so far off in their doctrine that they're not even a Christian, right? So all heretics are false teachers, but not all false teachers are heretics. Heretic is like varsity false teacher. It's really, really bad, and this heretic's name was Arius, okay, Arius, and what Arius taught was that Jesus wasn't really God, that Jesus wasn't really eternal, the central claim of Arianism was there was a time when the sun was not, okay? So he thought that Jesus was just a created being. Yes, he's a really great created being, maybe even the first created being, but still not God himself, just something that is created. And he is this heretic, and for his false teaching, he was kicked out of the church, okay? Now, one of the great defenders of the biblical view of Jesus, one of the great defenders of orthodoxy, and one of the opponents of Arius is a guy named Athanasius, He's actually uh, called Athanasius the Great. Why is he the Great? Because he helps defend biblical orthodoxy. He helps defend what the Bible actually teaches about Jesus. Now, there's this time in Athanasius' life where he gets called before the Roman emperor, which would be really scary, okay? At this point, the Roman emperor is the most powerful man in the world. And so Athanasius has three charges brought against him, and he has to give a defense before the Roman emperor, okay? The first charge is that Athanasius, this great defender of the faith, has been bad-mouthing the emperor's mom. That's the first charge. You don't do that, okay? You don't talk smack about the emperor's mama, okay? The second charge was that Athanasius had murdered a guy, cut off his hands, ground them into powder to use for witchcraft, okay? A common charge. I'm sure we've all been charged with that one time or another in our lives, but he had been accused of killing someone, cutting off their hands, grinding them into a powder, and using it for occult purposes. That was the second charge. And the third charge brought against Athanasius was that he had said that if the emperor allowed Arius to come back into the empire, that Athanasius would not work with the empire anymore, okay? So Athanasius, this central figure in church history, this guy who defended the eternal deity of Jesus, Jesus has always existed, he has always been the one God, he has to stand before the emperor and give an account for these three charges. Turns out that the first charge is false. He has not been bad-mouthing the emperor's mom, one, one, one potential concern away, okay? Now, when it comes to the second charge, here's what Athanasius did, because Athanasius is pretty smart. He brought with him the guy that he was accused of killing, but had a hood over his head and bags over each of his arms. So when somebody gets up and says, Athanasius, you've been charged with the murder of this guy, he's like, you mean this guy? And rips off the hood, and everybody's like, <gasps> but he still has bags over his hands. So somebody calls out in the audience, what about his hands? And so, you know, Athanasius, he's really hamming it up. So he takes off one bag, and everybody gasps. He has his hand. And then there's one hand left, and Athanasius rips off that bag, and everybody gasps. And then he turns to the audience and says, tell me, please, where is his third hand? 
just sarcastically. And so those charges are dismissed. He doesn't have to worry about the, uh, the second charge of murdering this guy, okay? But of the third charge, he's found to be guilty. That he so hated Arius and he so hated this false teaching that he had said that he would not support the empire if Arius was reinstated. Now, why? Athanasius had to go into exile several times in his life, and this is one of those times he had to go into exile because of this. Why? Because Athanasius knows that if you downplay who Jesus is, you lose Christianity altogether. If Jesus is a creature, you and I are idolaters. If Jesus is just a creature, he cannot save you, okay? He must be God himself. He must be the eternal God. And Athanasius held that so preciously that he was willing to be exiled for that. Now, the reason I start with that is because this text this morning is going to say this to us. The Trinity is a package deal, okay? God are one, and when you get one member of the Trinity, you get the other members of the Trinity. You don't get to kind of pick and choose, choose your own adventure of which God you will serve. You either serve the Trinitarian God of the Bible or you do not. We'll talk about that as we work through this text with the Father and uh, the Son, and then the Spirit is implied. Let's look at verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth, okay? Okay. Let's start with that first phrase. He says this. He says, I'll write to you not because you don't know the truth. Why does he give that clarifier? Why doesn't he just say, know these facts? Well, the reason that he does it, it's very simple. He's being pastoral. He's being diplomatic. He's saying, I'm not rebuking you for something you don't know. I'm merely reminding you of something you already know. Let me give you an example. If you go up to your spouse and you say, why don't you lose some weight? How's that going to go over? You're going to end up in marriage counseling here at Parkway. Okay, that's, what, that's the next step. That's step one. Step two is you meet with Carl and you hash these things out with your spouse. Okay? But instead, imagine that if you went up to your spouse and you said, you've been doing a great job in taking care of your body and I want to work out with you because I want to do a good job in taking care of my body as well. You see, there's a way to come around and say the same thing but in an encouraging way, in a way that's diplomatic, in a way that's pastoral. And that's what John is doing. He's not just trying to offend them. He's trying to say, let me remind you of something you already know and you're doing a good job. I just want to warn you so that you don't fall into false teaching. And he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. The it there is the truth. Now, what does he mean when he says, you know the truth? What does truth mean for John? What does truth mean in 1 John? Here's what he's saying. I'm writing this to you because you know Jesus. You know who Jesus is and you know correct doctrine about him. That's what he means when he says truth. Yes, we as Christians should hold to any form of truth. Two plus two equals four. That's a true statement. But specifically in the New Testament and with John, when he talks about the truth, he's meaning the capital T truth, the one who is truth, Jesus himself. Jesus is the truth in the sense that he answers all of the questions that we as humans long to know. We want to know why we were created. We want to know how we can be happy, how we can find joy. We want to know what happens uh, to us after we die. We want to know how we can get through suffering. Jesus is the answer to all of those. We are created by him. We are created for him. We are created to glorify him. When we die, we will be with him if you know Christ. He is the way that you persevere through suffering. He is the truth. And not only is he the truth, but you must believe true things about him. So here's an example I use oftentimes in our uh, new members class is this. If I get up and I say this to you, I really love my four foot 11, blonde haired, blue eyed wife. You might think, Zach, that's so endearing until you realize my wife is 5'10 and she's a brunette with green eyes. Okay. My wife is not concerned with me generically loving some woman. I have to love the right woman. Okay. 
It's the same way with God. I've heard people say, Zach, why do we need all this doctrine? Can't we just love Jesus? And my next question is always, which Jesus? The Jesus of Arius? The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? What, which Jesus do you mean? And all of a sudden, now we're doing theology again. So not only must you know the one who is truth, Jesus, but you must know the right Jesus. You must know the biblical Jesus. You must know the Jesus that's been handed down in tradition throughout 2,000 years of church history, the once for all delivered to the saints, Jesus. Let me read you some passages. 2 Corinthians 11, three through four. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, notice that one of the big things the devil does is put before us wrong versions of Jesus. As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes, hear this, and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you received, you put up with it readily enough. He's rebuking them for that. He's saying if somebody comes to you and preaches a different Jesus or a different gospel or a different spirit, do not listen to them. They are false teachers, okay? He says the same thing in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now look at the qualifier. Not that there is another one, right? It's a false gospel. There's only one true gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed in Greek means damned. Let that person be damned by God if they preach a different Jesus or a different gospel, okay? Remember, the devil appears as an angel of light. He likes to take a little truth, mix it with a little error, and present a false view of Jesus. I had to take a class uh, in school one time in Islam. And uh, we had a guy that was a guest speaker come into the class. And he was actually born in Iraq and grew up in Iraq, but he had become a Christian. And uh, he showed this video to the class of these uh, people in Algeria that were Muslims and had converted and become Christians. And we were watching their baptisms. They had to do it in a bathtub because they had no other place to do that. And I don't know if you know anything about the Middle East, not a lot of water there, okay? But, uh, but they're doing these, uh, the pastor would lean down and say something to these people, these candidates in Arabic, and then he would baptize them. And so, you know, one of the students in the class raised our hand and said, hey, can you help me out? My Arabic's a little rusty. Uh, what is he saying to these different converts that have just converted to Christianity? And the guy teaching that class said, he's asking them three questions. He's asking them this. Do you deny Allah? Do you deny the Quran? Do you deny Muhammad? And would you die for Jesus? And if they don't answer yes to all of those, he won't baptize them. You see, you don't get to just tack Jesus onto your pantheon. You get to submit your entire worldview to Jesus. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all in your life. There is not a pick and choose, okay? There's not a pick and choose. Let me tell you just a little fun, uh, fun interesting fact before we move on. The earliest piece of the New Testament that we have is what is called the Rylands Fragment, Papyrus 52, P52. Now let me tell you why this is interesting. With most works of ancient literature, so whether it's Plato or it's uh, you know, uh, Diogenes or whatever it might be, you have the, when they originally wrote, but we don't have any copies of those manuscripts until hundreds to thousands of years later, okay? P52 is the earliest piece of the New Testament we have and it dates to the early to mid 100s. 
Okay? Now, the reason that's significant is because New Testament scholarship used to say that the New Testament was written too late to be written by the apostles until we found the Rylands fragment, which justified the fact that all the gospels actually could have been written at the time of the, uh, the apostles. Okay? So this one little piece of uh, literature put hundreds of years of German higher biblical criticism to the flames. Okay? Papyrus 52, this very early document that we have. Do you know what is written on the back of Papyrus 52, of P52? It's the section of John, by the way. John was the gospel that was written last. If it's written within the time of John, then all the other apostles could have written their gospels earlier. Uh, It says this on the back. We're going to put it up on the screen. It doesn't have all of this because it's a small fragment, but this is the section that it's talking about. John 18, 37 through 38. Then Pilate said to him, that's Jesus, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Same idea that John is dealing with here. He dealt with in the gospel. He deals with here in 1 John. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Fascinating. Let's look at the next part of this verse. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Now look at this next part. And because no lie is of the truth. No lies of the truth. Okay, let me tell you what this is meaning in context, and then I want to explain something pastorally. What he's saying here is if these people are coming teaching a false view of Jesus or teaching false doctrine, have nothing to do with him. God's word is pure. God's doctrine is pure. You don't get to mix what's pure with what's impure when it comes to God's word. That's what he's saying specifically, okay? But what we need to understand, there's an implication of this verse, which is this. We as Christians are to care about the truth, We are to hate lies. We are to hate falsehoods. We must be consistent in our worldview. We must be consistent in our thinking. I've met a lot of people that hold a view of politics, hold a view of marriage, hold a view of their job, hold a view of parenting, whatever it might be, and then they get saved and follow Jesus, but none of those other things change. When you become a Christian, your entire worldview must change. The way that you thought about conflict, the way that you thought about uh, sex, the way that you thought about government, the way that you thought about all those things have to change in light of the gospel. You don't get to just tack Jesus onto your worldview. You have to conform your worldview around Jesus because if we're to be people that care about the truth and want to avoid lies and have lies have nothing to do with the truth, we must be consistent in what we say, not only explicitly, but hear this next point, implicitly as well. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Let's say you're a single guy and you're sitting down uh, on a date with a girl that you like and she says, I think that we should break up. And you're like, oh no. And you say, why? And she says, well, you're not really my type. And you say, well, what's your type? And she says, handsome. (laughs) Did she say explicitly you were ugly? Did she even use the word ugly? No, but guess what? It's just as, as if she did. It's implied that you're ugly. So ugly, she must break up with you right now. Okay, that's what's implied. A lot of times we don't understand as Christians, not only do we have to say things that are explicitly true, the implications of those things, which are necessarily wrapped up with it, must be said true as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to read a few phrases that I have heard or I have heard implied by actual Christians that have said this. And I want to show you how sometimes our worldview can be off. I've heard somebody say this. We shouldn't make abortion illegal unless we are willing to adopt all the unwanted babies. Yes and amen to adoption, but also yes and amen to making murder illegal. You see, you can have both. This phrase mixes a little truth and a little lies. You wouldn't say this. You wouldn't say, let's only make rape illegal if we're willing to adopt all those women. 
You would say rape should be illegal, murder should be illegal, and we should care about caring for people. I've heard Christians say this, I should not try to read my morality onto other people. Then you don't believe the Bible. If God's word stands over everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, and it does, God's commands against adultery or greed or pride isn't just for you, it's also for everyone. God's commands are for human flourishing. You don't get to not read your morality onto other people. If you think it's true, it's true for everyone. I've heard Christians say, I believe all the Bible's inspired by God, but Jesus' words are more important than Paul's words. No, uh, the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring Paul. Don't put Jesus and Paul in a cage match with each other, okay? The red words in your Bible are not more important than the black words. Because they all come from the Spirit, they're all red words, if you want to say it that way, okay? So uh, yes, we worship Jesus and we don't worship Paul. When it comes to Scripture, Paul's words are just as inspired as Jesus's. I've heard Christians say this, Deborah was a judge in the Old Testament, and Phoebe is called a servant in Romans, so women should be elders in a local church despite what the New Testament explicitly says. Do you see, the, do you see how they're not consistent with the worldview? See how there's a little bit of truth but a little bit of lie mixed together? I've heard people say that if wealth were more evenly distributed, then people would be less sinful. Is that true? Do you believe that? Is the problem in human heart something with wealth or is it something with sin? Take all the money in the U.S., lump it up and give everyone an equal share. Will they have an equal share 10 years from now? They will not. Will sin go away? Nobody's going to assault anybody. Nobody's going to have pride. Nobody's going to do any of this. No. I've heard people say this. God's word stands over everyone, but you don't have a right to speak truth into my life. Well, which one is it? Does God's word stand over everyone and you have to take truth no matter who it comes from? Or do I have to have a relationship with you to speak truth into your life? They can't both be true at the same time. I've heard people imply social privilege is bad. So I'm critiquing your group so that my group can have more social privilege. Well, which one is it? Do you want to have more of a say in culture or is that bad, okay? So what we have to understand as Christians is the main thing this text is saying is hold to a correct view of Jesus and don't mix in error. But I also want to encourage you that there is something implied in this text, which is we are to be people of the truth, not people of the truth that also have lies mixed in. We need to be consistent with God's word explicitly and with the implications of our beliefs. Let's look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So notice, he just said there's two kinds of people. There are truth people that follow Jesus and they have nothing to do with lies. And then there are people who in their essence, their identity is those who are liars. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. You might speak uh, French or German, the devil speaks lie. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And now he's going to say two of those seven are lying. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, there it is a second time, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Jeremiah 9, 5 through 6, everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. 
They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. He's saying this, everybody fits into one of two categories. The categories are not male and female. The categories are not black and white. The categories are not rich and poor. The categories are believer and unbeliever. You either know Christ and you're walking according to the truth or you are a liar and you don't know Christ and you have, as Jesus would say to the Pharisees, your father the devil, okay? Those are the only two. It is a stark, stark contrast. It is a stark contrast, okay? Let's keep looking, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's specifically what they're denying. John is writing to this group of Christians, warning them against false teachers. What are the false teachers doing? They're denying that Jesus is the Messiah and they're denying, false, or they're denying true things about him. They're teaching false things about him. So let me, let, me, let me explain it this way. When we say the phrase Jesus Christ, you realize that Christ is not like his last name, right? Like he doesn't get mail delivered to his address that's like Mr. Christ. That's not what that is, okay? Christ, from the Greek word Christos, means the anointed one. Messiah, from the Hebrew Mashiach, means the anointed one, okay? So to call Jesus Messiah or Christ means you're calling him the anointed one. Now we all say, okay, that's great. What does that mean? That kind of just pushes the question a little bit further. What does it mean to be the anointed one? Here's the best example I can give you for a modern audience. We don't do a lot of anointings today when somebody becomes president or something like that. And so let me give you the best modern example I can. Have you seen The Lion King? Yeah, okay, good, we got a whoop, okay? It's great. If you haven't seen it, it's like 20 years old, go see it. It's probably free. Uh, you can probably just watch it on YouTube or pirate it or something. I'm joking, don't pirate it. Uh, but you can watch it. Not only that, but they had the live uh, action remake of it. You can go see it on Broadway as a play. Now, here's what you need to know about The Lion King. How does The Lion King start? It starts with a coronation, right? Ah, uh, the weird music happens. That's all I'm going to sing to you, by the way, just in case you were hoping. You're like, give me a few more lines. That's all I know. That's the extent of my Swahili or whatever they're saying. All the animals are flocking to Pride Rock, okay, because Simba is the king, and he is going, this is his coronation. This is his becoming the king ceremony, okay? So all the animals are going to Pride Rock, and who comes up to Pride Rock? A weird witchcraft monkey named Rafiki, right? He's the shaman. Rafiki represents the prophetic and the priestly class of the Pride Lands. He's got this wisdom, he's older, he's got this insight, he carries a staff. And what he does is this witchcraft monkey, Rafiki, who's this prophetic character, walks up to baby Simba and he cracks open this delicious looking melon and he dips his thumb in some of the juice and he might as well just be putting a cross on his forehead at this point, okay? He takes that and he puts it across his head and then he takes Simba and he holds him up and all the animals bow. All the animals take a knee. That is what it means to be the anointed one. To have this prophet come and anoint you. In the Old Testament, they would take oil and they'd pour it on your head. Why? Because they're not anointing you. They're not making you king. God is making you king. Kings rule by divine right. So what they would do is they would put this liquid on your head as if to say God has made you king and then everyone would bow. Everyone would take a knee. That's what it means for Jesus to be Christ. That's what it means for him to be the anointed one. It means he's a king. It means he's the son of David. When you hear Jesus Christ, you should think Jesus the king. When you hear Jesus the Messiah, you should think King Jesus. That's the idea of him being the anointed one. 
So false teachers are those who come and say, Jesus is not that Messiah. He's not that king. He's a good moral prophet. He's a good teacher, but he's just a guy like Gandhi or uh, something like this, okay? And so you need to understand false teachers not only will deny that Jesus is the Christ, but we also see elsewhere in 1 John that they're denying certain things about Jesus. They're downplaying his deity. They're downplaying his humanity, saying that he did not come in the flesh. They're saying the Messiah hasn't come. And so a liar is someone who denies Christ or true doctrine about him. New Testament scholar Karen Job says this, Jesus' resurrection and ascension funded his title, that's Christ, with new unprecedented meaning, never anticipated by the concept of the Messiah in Second Temple Judaism. Jesus proved to be the Messiah, yes, but the Messiah turned out to be God himself. Turned out to be God himself, okay? Now look at the next phrase here. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. We've already talked a little bit about what this is like in a sermon we did two weeks ago and then Jeff's, again, excellent lesson on antichrists and enemies of the kingdom that is both, you can check those out on the, uh, on the website. So I won't spend a lot of time here. Here's what you need to know. When we think of antichrist, we think of one particular figure who's very charismatic, who's very powerful, who like comes out of Romania or something and that he will be this like end times ultimate enemy of God. We think of that, Okay. Now, the Bible might teach that there is this singular evil figure, this ultimate antichrist who's coming. But in John's writing, the bigger focus is more on anyone who denies Christ or denies true things about him, okay? So antichrists, plural, don't have to be these powerful charismatic figures. They're people you know. The average lost person isn't an antichrist, although they are opposed to God. An antichrist is anyone, though, who directly opposes Jesus or teaches false things about him. And here's what's so weird. People who are false teachers obviously can't see it. People who are false teachers have a tendency to think that they're on the right path, right? And so every time I've ever had to tell somebody, hey, you're in a cult, you know the first thing they say? I'm not in a cult. And I say, that's what people in cults say right? You're not going to see it. Other people have to see it for you. You're not going to be able to see it. If, if multiple people are telling you you're in a cult, you should probably consider what they're saying. You should probably listen. When I was a, uh, a kid in uh, elementary school, what was really cool to do was to go skating at the skating rink with your friends. Not so cool today, but I thought that was the coolest thing. If I was in like fourth or fifth grade, so I would get to the skating rink and I would feel like I was awesome. I would feel tough, I would feel like I was cool, despite the fact that my mom had to drop me off. I would take that money, which is my mom and dad's money, and I would go up to the counter and I'd buy a Coke or some candy, and I'm like, yeah, here's, keep the change. Here's some money. I'm pretty cool, right? I'd be skating around. I wouldn't have those like girl Sonic skates with the two up front and the two in the back. I had rollerblades, right? Because I was awesome. And it was a chance where if there was some cute girl you liked, you could hold her hand while you skated until your idiot friend who's going too fast runs into you and pulls your shorts down and you fall over, Right? But here I am thinking that I am just awesome. And as I'm skating, Gangster's Paradise from Coolio comes on. And I think to myself, I can beat up anyone else here who's also wearing skates, right? I'm just going to skate up to that fight and get into a brawl. Now, for me, I think in that moment, that is the coolest. For any outsider, they think, who is this awkward skinny kid whose mom dropped him off, who's skating? How, how many tough guys skate? You ever seen a Navy SEAL ice skate? You haven't, right? He's skating, he's falling down, he's using his, he's not cool at all. You can't see it when you're in it. You can't see it when you're in it. It's the same way with false teaching. 
Part of the reason we don't just get on an island and study the Bible by ourselves is because we don't want to start a cult. We study the Bible with other Christians so when we say something crazy, we can say, nope, that's not what it means because this verse. We study the Bible within the context of church history so that we say millions of spirit-inspired believers, millions of spirit-filled believers who are way smarter than you and I, who know the languages way better than you and I, none of them have ever held it, so good luck with your new weirdo interpretation. That's how we are protected. But notice that he's warning against false teachers who are not gonna be able to see it. And notice to deny one member of the Trinity is to deny all of them. To deny one member of the Trinity is to deny all of them. He says more of that in the next verse. Let's look at that, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let's look at the first part of that. No one who denies the Son has the Father. You ever heard this phrase? That all religions are just different paths to the same goal, right? You ever seen a coexist bumper sticker? Which lets me know the owner of that vehicle knows nothing of the world's major religions, okay? It can't be that all different religions are just the same path to God because they disagree about God. In Buddhism, you technically have no God. Your job is to reach nirvana and enlightenment. In Hinduism, you have millions of gods, okay? In Judaism, you have one God. Islam says Jesus is not God's son and he did not die on a cross. In Christianity, we say Jesus is God's son and he did die on a cross. They're mutually exclusive. I don't know if you've ever heard the example of religion being like four blind men feeling an elephant. You ever heard this? Now, I don't, I don't know why they use this as an illustration. If I'm blind, I'm not going anywhere near an elephant, but there are these four blind men and they're all touching different parts of the elephant. So one guy's touching a leg and he says, ah, it feels like the trunk of a tree. Another guy's touching the, the, you know, the actual trunk of the elephant, the nose, and he says, oh, it feels like the branch of a tree. Another guy's feeling, you know, the tusk, and he says, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pointy and it's hard and it's ivory or whatever it is. The problem with that an- analogy is that the different religions don't have the same elephant. Some have no elephants. Some have millions of elephants. Some have a Trinitarian elephant. The goal itself is not even the same. The different religions are contradictory They cannot all be true at the same time. So what he's saying is there is only one way to God. That is through Christ. There's only one way to God, and that is through Christ, okay? He says that next. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the what? The truth, we just talked about that. They know the truth. Here's another reference in John where Jesus is called the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at this next part. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no getting God without getting Jesus. And you need to understand this too. Jesus is not just like this conduit. It's not like you're really just trying to get the Father and Jesus is just something you have to go through. Jesus is God himself. The reason you get the Father when you get the Son is because it's a package deal. There is only one God. To have one member of the Trinity means that you must also have uh, the other two members of the Trinity, okay? So let's look at verse 23 again. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. One of the things that we as Christians hold that is unique to Christianity, other religions and these kind of things don't hold this, is that we believe that God is a Trinity, okay? We do not believe in three gods. Do you understand that? We do not believe in three beings. We do not believe that there, in that we believe there's only one God, one essence, one being, a God who has one mind. And yet somehow this one God, there's a plurality to, his, uh, to him. There's a, uh, he has three distinct persons, yet only one God. Let me show you this scripturally. Imagine that you're a Jew and every day in the morning you get up and you say what is called the Shema. 
Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You say it multiple times a day. Keep that in mind. Strict Jewish monotheism. Look how many times the Bible says there is one God here. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Kings 8.60. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Deuteronomy 4.25. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So in case you were thinking that maybe there's a bunch of gods and we should just worship God, the Lord, Yahweh, this text instead is saying, no, the other gods don't even exist. They're phonies, they're fakes, okay? There's something demonic behind them, but no God. Keeps going in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Look at this. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So the Bible's very clear. How many gods are there? Just one. There's only one God one essence, one mind, one God, okay? Yet, as the New Testament describes Jesus, it lumps him in that category. As the New Testament describes the Spirit, it lumps him into that category. You see, the Trinity is all over the Bible. You have to. You have strict Jews writing Jewish theology that believe in one God, yet they're fine calling Jesus that one God. Jude will say it was Jesus that delivered the Jews out of Egypt, okay? But look, so you have one God, One essence, now you get to see three hypostases or three persons. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, there's the Son. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God, there's the Spirit, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, that's the Father, says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. There's only one God, yet you see a plurality of persons. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, that's the spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, this is Jesus speaking, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see Father, Son, and Spirit, though there's only one God. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There you have Son, Father, and Spirit mentioned in that order. Be with you all. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's the Father, In the sanctification of the Spirit, there's the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one Spirit, there's the Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, there's the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I say all of that to say this. We do not worship three gods. What makes the members of the Trinity together is not their relationship, it's their essence, it's their substance. There's only one God, okay? So you cannot have, I say all of that and give you all that theology and all that, those Bible verses to simply say this, you don't get to pick and choose. You either get Jesus, which also gets you the Father and you're indwelt by the Spirit, you get all the members of the Trinity or you get none. There is no picking and choosing. I said this two weeks ago and I'll say it again, it's very offensive but it is central to what we hold as Christians. There is no other way to be saved other than through Christianity. There are a bunch of religions. We are the only right one. I don't mean here at the Parkway Church. I mean historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity, okay? There is no other way to be saved. 
To deny the son, you deny the father. To get rid of the father, you deny the son, you deny the spirit, okay? So the Trinity, again, is a package deal. Now, here's how I want to end this sermon today. John is writing to warn people from following false teachers. He's writing to warn Christians from falling away, okay? And so what I wanna do is I wanna give you some things you might be tempted in that could tempt you to leave the faith. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think you can actually leave the faith if you're a Christian. Jeff talked about this last week. I thought he did an excellent job. If you are truly a Christian and you are truly saved, God cannot re-impute your sin to you. It's already been forgiven. He cannot put you back up for adoption. He's already adopted you. God has in his mind a number, the number of people that will be saved and that number never changes, okay? There's no such thing as a real Christian losing their salvation. But there are a lot of people that think they're Christians and are not. And from our perspective, it looks like they've lost their salvation. So when I say fall away, I don't mean that an actual Christian can fall away. To say it this way, a true Christian cannot leave the faith. If you leave the faith, it shows that you were never a part of it to begin with. To say it another way, once saved, always saved is true, but it only works as long as you were once saved, okay? But what I wanna do is I wanna give you some things that might be eating away at you where you might be tempted to do what these false teachers are doing. You might be tempted to throw in the towel. You might be tempted to leave the faith and then I wanna encourage you on how to fight those things, okay? So what might tempt you to turn away from Christ? One is wanting to avoid persecution. That's, a lot of re- that, that's one of the reasons where a lot of these people have left the faith in the early, uh, in the early church. In the first century, they were being persecuted by Jews and so they just said, it's easier not to be persecuted so I'm not gonna be a Christian. Persecution is coming for us. I don't know if you watch the news, I don't know if you watch what's going on, but you will be persecuted. More Christian martyrs died in the 1900s than all previous centuries combined. Did you know that? Persecution is coming. You can already in some states now go to jail for misgendering someone's preferred pronoun. So just know, persecution is coming. Stay faithful to Jesus. Here's the second one. Wealth and distractions in this life. Wealth and distractions in this life. You don't need Jesus. You have a Lexus, right? You have a fancy house. You have a boat. You have whatever it is. And like the parable of the soils that Jesus tells, those things choke out that new life, okay? Or that so-called new life. Wealth and the distractions of this life. Are those things eating away at you? Do those things rob you of your affections for Jesus? Look at the third one thinking that you are smarter than God. A lot of people that I have known that I thought were Christians and fell away from the faith, that's ultimately what it came down to was pride. They didn't understand something in the Bible. They didn't know how they could put it together. So instead of realizing that the fault is with them and their limited knowledge and their sinfulness, they thought that the problem was God. You and I are not smarter than God. A creature that trips over its own feet and chokes on its own spit doesn't get to address God like that, okay? You and, you and God, me and God, we are, not, we are not equals, okay? You are not God's equal. I feel like if I were God and someone were to come up and say, this part of the Bible's stupid, do you really think this happened? I'd say, are you that same creature that's dropped your phone in the toilet? Because I don't think that you're fit to have this conversation with me, okay? God is beyond our questioning. Yes, ask good questions about the faith, but at the end of the day, God wins. If there's a place where you are thinking you are smarter than God, that you would be a better God than God, remember, that's the original sin of humanity. Adam wants to get to call the shots. So when you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is the sin of humanity, wanting to be like God instead of just being humans and being loved by God. The fourth thing that may tempt you to walk away from the faith is this, continual unrepentant sin. Continual unrepentant sin. Most atheists that I've talked to did not become atheists because of an intellectual objection, it was because of a moral objection. 
There was something to some sin they wanted to pursue, some lifestyle they wanted to pursue. And so what atheism is, atheism is a crutch. It's a way where you can pursue your sin and not have to feel guilty because you just pretend that God doesn't exist. That's what it's there. That's where you get atheism, right? There's no society that's ever arisen that has been naturally atheistic. You have to teach man to be an atheist. Mankind will worship trees before it will worship nothing. We're made to be worshipers. And because God has written his law on our hearts, we know that what we do is wrong whether we're Christians or not. And so atheism is invented as a way to try to quiet your conscience because you know what you're doing is wrong. Number five, continual condemnation. Eventually, your own flesh or the enemy eats away at you and eats away at you and eats away at you to eventually you just say, forget it. I can't do this anymore. Now, there's a sense in which I want you to say, forget it, I can't do this anymore, and just rest in Jesus, not throw the towel in on Jesus, okay? Number six, doubt or false teaching. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind, okay? That's why we care so much about theology here at Parkway. If you're continually thinking wrong thoughts, doubtful thoughts, false teaching kind of thoughts, your heart is going to drift. Your your heart will follow your mind, okay? And so if you're continually doing that, doubt your doubts. Put the same scrutiny you put against Christianity against whatever your worldview is. And then the last one, tragedy, tragedy. Sometimes the best question when you meet someone who's an atheist is not why, it's what happened. I lost a kid, my dad died when I was five, my uncle molested me, whatever it is, and if that's the kind of world that God has allowed to exist, I want nothing to do with him. It's a tragedy, okay? Now, in a room this size, there are probably several of you really struggling with your faith, myself included, myself included. Christianity has never been easy to me. I always feel like I'm one step away from just forsaking it all. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's due to tragedy. Maybe it's due to sin. Maybe it's due to doubt. Maybe it's due to condemnation. So let me give you two things to hang on to, okay? The first one is this. I swear to you that Jesus is better than whatever you're chasing. I swear to you he's better. You might not see it in the short term, but you will see it in the long term. God never asks you to give up a greater joy for a lesser joy, but he will ask you to give up lesser joys for the greatest joy being him, okay? So you might be thinking, man, I love this particular thing. I love this particular sin. I want to do this thing, but it doesn't satisfy, which is why you have to keep going back to it. Jesus is infinite. Jesus is eternal. By default, he can fill that void in your heart, which temporary things can't fill. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus is better. Hear me now, believe me later. Hear me now, believe me later. The second thing I want you to hear is this. You cannot out the cross of Christ. You might be struggling with some sin, struggling with some t- temptation, maybe even giving into it, maybe giving into it intentionally. You need to know this. Your desire to run away from God if you're a Christian is not as strong as his desire to run after you. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can just be loved and be awful And the more you focus on that, the less awful you actually become. The way that you grow in holiness is not by trying to be holy. It's by knowing that God saves sinners. Jesus came to die for real sinners, bad sinners, not just the righteous or something like this. He's come to die for those of us who need it. So if you're thinking, Zach, I'm just, I'm on the edge. I don't know if I can keep doing this. Take heart. That's who Jesus died for. That's who Jesus died for. If you are really a Christian, If there's ever been a time where you have trusted Christ, you need to have this encouragement. You cannot jump out of his hand. You cannot lose your salvation because it's not up to you. It's up to God. If someone were to come into my office and they were to say to me, and let's say I knew this person was a Christian. I've seen fruit in their life. They have correct doctrine. They love Jesus. I know they're a Christian. And they were to come into my office and they were to say, Zach, 
I'm tempted to walk away from the faith. You know what I'd say to them? Do it. Then do it. If you want to walk away, walk away from the faith. You know what they would say? They would say, well, no, Zach, that's why I'm here. I don't really want to. And I'd say, I know. That's my point. My point is that if you know Christ, you can't walk away. You might think you can. You might get mad and curse at the sky and walk away. And then like 30 seconds later, you'll be like, I'm just kidding. I still want Jesus, right? Because God preserves us. Take heart that Jesus has come to save sinners, even sinners who aren't getting better, even sinners who are struggling. God's love and God's commitment to you comes way before he actually starts sanctifying and growing you through those things. There will be days when you hate Jesus, but there are no days when he hates you. There are no days when he hates you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this text and I pray that you would uh, help us love love you more. I pray that you would protect us from false teaching or false teachers. I pray that if anyone in here might be like those in John's audience, tempted to leave the faith, tempted to say that this is all rubbish, tempted to say that this is untrue and just forsake it, become agnostic, atheistic, join another religion, whatever it might be, I pray that you would uh, overwhelm them with your love. I pray that they wouldn't feel condemnation, they would feel a sweet, tender conviction of a God whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light and a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick, a little candle as Jesus walks by, he doesn't snuff it out. I pray that we would be encouraged by these things. We thank you for this text. Please bless this time as we partake in communion together. We want to ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.